When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune in to today's show. What will a post-FTX world look like? We'll be joined live by Ari Redbird from TRM Labs to discuss 2023 through the lens of litigation, arbitration, regulation, all of the TION words, and the Genesis DCG saga gets more heated in a very public way. We'll also be joined by Ram Aluwalia from Lumida, will walk us through exactly what's going on there later in the show. I'm Ash Bennington. Happy New Year to everyone watching or listening. For those of you joining us on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. We have a ton of free crypto content on the website. Do check it out. If you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. Smash everything in sight. We appreciate it. Uh, now let's jump into the latest price action. We've seen very little movement, quite frankly, in the price of Bitcoin over the holidays. Bitcoin is almost unchanged on a 24-hour basis. Bitcoin is down 1% on a trailing seven-day basis, currently trading at around 16,600 US dollars. A similar story on the Ether side of the aisle. ETH is virtually unchanged for the past week. ETH currently hovering now around the $1,200 mark. Let me just add, if you zoom out on these charts to say one year, they basically look like horizontal lines. This is a very low amount of volatility in the space, particularly considering all the news flow that we've had uh, throughout the months of November and December. One more token that's been making some big moves, and that is Solana, SOL battered by the FTX fallout. It's up 17% over the last 24 hours. Sol is up more than 20% on a trailing seven-day basis, but it remains down heavily, heavily for the past year, down more than 80% on a one-year basis, trailing 12 months, currently trading at around $13.30 in U.S. dollars. Let's bring on our first guest. Ari Redbird is the head of legal and regulatory affairs at TRM Labs. Ari, welcome back to Real Vision. Ash, so great to join you as always, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's always a pleasure to have you on. We're one of our favorite guests, particularly when we're talking about the things uh, that we are enmeshed in right now. Let's jump right in, Ari. What the heck is going on? What's happening? Give us your latest take on what's going on on FTX on the criminal side. Yeah, look, uh, it's 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 a big case for so so many reasons, and and part of that is just because there's so many different cases sort of proceeding at the same time. At least for for the moment, you have the CFTC, uh, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. You have the SEC also bringing sort of civil complaints um, over the course of the last month. But really, what's going to take priority is is the criminal prosecution. And I know that um, SBF is prepared to. Um, appear in court today to enter a plea and yeah. the reporting as 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 you see on the screen the reporting is uh that he will enter a not guilty plea which makes perfect sense Aaron, Essentially, talk, speaking speaking yeah. of that I, I think that that yeah. wasn't yet up on the screen let me just go through the current news flow here so bring people up to date for folks Please. who uh, may be coming back after the holiday weekend uh former ftx ceo sam bankman fried is expected to appear in court in manhattan today in the southern district of new york where he will be formally arraigned the wall street journal is reporting sbf will plead not guilty. He's been charged with fraud and money laundering, among other charges. Uh, before hearing that, Bankman-Fried resurfaced on Twitter. He denied any part in recent transfers of Alameda funds. Alameda was the trading firm, of course, co-founded by Sam Bankman-Fried. The crypto wallets associated with Alameda Research We were seen transferring funds out just days after Sam Bankman-Fried was released on bail. Uh, some analysts said that those types of transfers were suspicious. Sam Bankman-Fried uh, out on Twitter denying that he had anything to do with it, claiming that he no longer has access to those accounts. Ari, uh, I'm sorry to break in there, but- uh, no, that's perfect. Yep. A, little bit, a little bit more context on, on where we are and what this means. We should say, uh, for those of our viewers uh, um, who are joining us, that you, of course, were a former federal prosecutor, a lot of experience in precisely this area. What does it mean? What's the context? Set the stage for us. Yeah, it's really important. You know, a, a criminal prosecution sort of has a lifespan. 
and um, you know, it essentially starts with an investigation. And here, that investigation likely started, you know, well over a month ago now, when we saw the sort of collapse of FTX and everything it meant in the space. You know, we what we saw is investigators, prosecutors, agents move incredibly swiftly. I mean, quite honestly, unprecedented from what I've seen in terms of right. the speed of an investigation. And what they do is gather as much evidence as possible, and they present that evidence to a grand jury. And a grand jury is just like a trial jury. It's a, it's a group of, of peers. Uh, it's a group of folks who are usually sitting in a courthouse or some other location for months at a time hearing about different cases. And they ultimately decide uh, which, which charges to bring or which charges to approve. Well, he was indicted you know, several weeks ago um, and then ultimately arrested in the Bahamas and extradited just recently over the last week or so to the U.S. And essentially, he now faces charges here in the U.S., eight counts of securities fraud, of money laundering, of, um, of wire fraud, and campaign finance fraud. Um, and it really all goes back to this idea where there was a commingling of funds, taking user funds on FTX, and then take essentially making the investments with those funds uh, through Alameda, the other company that you mentioned. Um, and and es essentially that, that was the fraud uh, involved here. And what we're going to see today is for him to really appear in court before a judge for something called an arraignment, which, again, is another piece of that sort of longer life cycle of a, of a criminal prosecution. And at that arraignment, there's really one key question, and that is whether or not he pleads guilty or, non -guilt, or not guilty. And in almost every instance, a criminal defendant at this stage in the proceeding pleads not guilty. And what really that arraignment is, is a way sort of say, hey, we're going to start moving towards trial. But that does not cut off by any stretch of the imagination the ability to plead later or continue to or, or to open negotiations and discussions about a possible plea with uh, with the Justice Department, with the prosecutors in this case, uh, which are out of the Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan. Yeah, these are really incredibly important points that you raise here. The idea here being uh, that often criminal defendants will plead guilty at a later point in time after initiating initially uh, entering a plea of not guilty. Essentially, uh, from the perspective of the criminal defense team, it doesn't narrow your options uh, by pleading not guilty early on in the case. You still have the capacity to open negotiation with the Department of Justice to plead out to lesser charges if they are so amenable. Absolutely. In fact, you can plead guilty today while being involved in, in discussions, in plea negotiations of some kind with, with the government. It's really just this moment where um, you're going to see the judge, possibly this judge for the first time, as there's a new judge in the case. Uh, that's where you'll sort of be arraigned on the specific charges. You'll be able to plead guilty or not guilty. Already a decision is made that he is not going to be detained uh, pending trial or pending a resolution of this case. So he's already out on bail. And over the next you know, few weeks and really several months, we're going to sort of see how this case plays out. I think one thing that's really important that I don't get it, I don't know of getting enough discussion in this case is the importance of what they call the federal sentencing guidelines in a criminal prosecution. And oftentimes they really drive outcomes. Um, and essentially what the federal sentencing guidelines, they used to be mandatory on judges. They are not anymore. Uh, the Supreme Court essentially said that judges should be their own decision makers, that it's unconstitutional to put for the executive branch or the legislative branch to put these types of restrictions on them. But, but ultimately, most judges follow the sentencing guidelines. And what they are is a calculus. It looks at the charges. It looks at the amount of fraud involved, which is a key driver for the guidelines. So in this case, um, if we're talking billions of dollars, up to eight billion or something, um, those are even those are off the guideline charts, right? Um, so those are going to be a major driver. And if you look at a very very quick calculation of uh, the federal sentencing guidelines in this case, are some something akin to life in prison. So the reality is, if this defendant is to go to trial, and there is a guilty verdict based on the strength of the evidence, he could be potentially looking at a life sentence. The only way to get off of those sentencing guidelines, essentially, is to cooperate with the government, is to plead guilty, uh, and and we'll ultimately see how that plays out. I, I obviously, you know, I, I learned as a prosecutor for a very long time never to predict the outcomes of a criminal case, but I can say that the the sentencing guidelines and ultimately what he is facing will play a very large factor in ultimately what he decides to do and the risk of going to trial. 
A couple of important points there that you made that I'd like to double click on. Talking about cooperation, we were talking a little bit about this off camera, uh, the idea that for every white collar criminal defendant, uh, their greatest nightmare is having uh, two of their chief lieutenants become cooperating witnesses. Tell us a little bit about what that means, uh, what type of pressure that puts on the defense team in this case. Yeah, again, again, really important. And it goes back to this sort of discussion of a life cycle of a criminal case, right? As you're investigating, as you're building as a prosecutor or a team of prosecutors, you just want to come up with the sort of best evidence you possibly can. And in this case, that means, you know, millions of transaction data. It means, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of documents, including emails and Slack messages and all kinds of, uh, you know, and, and text messages. Uh, but the best evidence is witnesses because they can really tell a story of what happens. They can put a jury in the place. Um, they can put them in the conversations. And here you have two very, very senior executives from FDX who have already pled guilty. And they are going to be a very big part of the government's case. They were probably involved in much of the decision making, heard much of what was said, and um, will obviously be able to uh, really, really bolster the 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 criminal case here. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're building, you, you, you sort of, you, you're building, you're, you're sort of creating building blocks and you're going up the chain. So ultimately the question is, well, who could the lieutenants testify against? Well, the chief executive right here, the defendant in this case, um, it, you know, which is very, very powerful. There will be a question if you're talking about cooperation from FDF, uh, from SBF specifically, you know, hey, what can he cooperate on? What can he offer if he's sort of the highest rung of the ladder at this point? Well, it's a good open-ended question. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that I think what people miss often is that it's not just about cooperating against people, if you will, or or helping with other cases. It's potentially sort of look. When I was a prosecutor, we talked about taking a victim-centered approach, right? How can we make victims whole? Whether we're talking about a violent crime or whether we're talking about fraud and financial crime, and there's a lot of money missing here. There's a lot of questions as to how users can get back some of the funds that they've they've lost. And um, if uh, SBF is uniquely able to point agents and investigators to funds that can help make investors whole, I think that could be a tremendous source of cooperation. Um, understanding better sort of how this fraud worked for potentially help in other cases. I think of that as sort of sor sources and methods, right? Are there things that he can provide law enforcement to help them potentially in other cases? Are there things that he knew about other bad actors in the space um, that could potentially help? So uh, just because he's sort of the highest rung on the totem pole doesn't necessarily mean that um, he's unable to cooperate, but the cooperation has to take other forms other than sort of, you know, the type of cooperation that you'll see from his lieutenants, which will essentially be testifying, uh, you know, against against him and, and, and others sort of higher up the chain. Well, you know, one thing that strikes me about the sort of cooperation of his lieutenants is that it must be greatly beneficial to the Department of Justice's case here uh, in that one of the challenges I imagine uh, that federal prosecutors must have felt they were facing going into this was just how incredibly abstruse these charges were. The idea uh, that you're trying to essentially prove criminal conduct uh, in, a, in a field uh, that lots of folks out there who are probably going to be in the jury pool simply don't understand because they are so sort of rarefied. And when you have cooperating witnesses, when you have people saying, uh, you know, essentially allocuting to their crimes, saying, listen, these are the things that we did wrong. We knew that they were crimes at the time, or we now believe them to be crimes. That must be greatly beneficial to do, to the SDNY case. Great, greatly beneficial. And, you know, the job of a prosecutor, really any trial attorney is when you're speaking to a jury, you need to take, you know, arguably really, really complex ideas. Here the inner workings of a pretty opaque, uh, you know, financial institution, essentially, and and make them relatable to witnesses, uh, to to um, to the jury through witnesses. And to have people who are actually in the room who can tell the stories, can bring the jury into the room with them where decisions were made and things were said um, by the defendant in this case and others, it's just really, really powerful. I sort of just randomly think of this anecdote. I, you know, when I was a baby prosecutor, you know, many years ago, I was doing cases involving sort of drug distribution. And the way I, the way I would sort of describe this to, uh, to juries when I first got in front of juries was, Hey, look, if you're going to have if you're going to have this big bag of M&Ms, you know, and you'd, you'd hold just a giant bag filled with M&Ms. Those are going to be something that I am going to uh, eat myself. 
uh, I am going, th those, those are not something that I would necessarily share with my friends, big handfuls. But when you have those Halloween packed M&Ms, that's the kind of M&Ms that you distribute. You give out to the kids on Halloween. And I would describe the way drug dealers would essentially distribute as opposed to possess through that sort of means. That is a super oversimplification of what we'll see in this case, but it is so critical to be able to take sort of, you know, legal concepts and explain them to juries using sort of witnesses and, and the simplest types of terms. Yeah. Talking of which, I know I'm asking you to get out your crystal ball here, uh, but when you talk about uh, what a potential plea agreement could look like for either the current cooperating witnesses or what a plea agreement might, emphasize might, look like in the event that Sam Bankman-Fried decides to change his plea, obviously he hasn't yet been arraigned, he hasn't yet entered a plea, the expectation is that he's going to plead not guilty. How do you even begin to think about when you have a potential life sentence, uh, what that framework might look like, what a plea offer might look like, and what a plea deal might might look like. Yeah, I think the prosecutors in this case will try to get to the right place, sort of this fundamental fairness idea. Obviously, people uh, need to be punished, particularly for stealing, you know, potentially billions of dollars. But you want to get to the right place at sentencing as well, particularly sort of around cooperation. I have seen some reporting on one of the plea agreements um, in this case um, and, and not entirely sure sort of where that will, will ultimately land. Usually, the way prosecutors work is they ask a defendant to essentially plead to at least one of the most serious charges. And the reason they do that is when you're at trial, you don't want a witness who has that has significant bias of having essentially been able to get away with, for lack of a better description, the, 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 the criminal activity. You want someone who has taken responsibility and who has essentially pled to a lead charge. Now, once you're finished with trial, once you're finished with cooperation, ultimately the prosecutor will go to the judge at sentencing and ask for something called a downward departure. And that downward departure means that asking the judge to depart from those federal sentencing guidelines. And in this case, it would be based on something called substantial assistance to the government. In other words, Your Honor, this witness has helped in this prosecution, has accepted responsibility, has maybe done certain things to help with restitution for victims. And therefore, I would ask for a downward departure from the sentencing guidelines. Now, that could be open-ended, asking the judge to use his or her discretion, or it could be very specific, um, asking for sort of some amount of time. Um, I do understand in this case that there may be some agreements not to prosecute um, or, uh, at least one of the two cooperators. Um, but I, I, again, it's so hard what, to sort of take out what's, this. What's been the reporting around that? Yeah, I, I saw I saw I saw something, and again, like I I'm not sort of tracking the plea agreement itself closely, but it was something about at least for um, one of the one of the cooperators uh, that it would not be anything other than criminal tax charges uh, that potentially could come from from IRS, um, and we'll ultimately what, see how that plays out. And that there, what I, does that I, mean, so, criminal tax charges? Yeah, so, so so certainly, so just like anything else, tax evasion, there are civil there or or, or sort of tax evasion. Yeah, there are civil um, penalties that come from the IRS. Um, but there are also criminal penalties that can come ultimately from the Department of Justice, mostly investigated by IRS's Criminal Investigations Division, IRSCI. So there's a whole host of sort of criminal tax charges that could ultimately come. But here, here what they're essentially saying uh, is, hey, other than that sort of fraud, um, money laundering, we're, we're going to agree not to bring those charges, um, you know, in um, – in response to your your being willing to cooperate. So we'll ultimately see how all this plays out. But I will say normally it's that process I just sort of walk through where you take or you plead guilty to the lead charge, uh, you ultimately cooperate with the government, and then the prosecutors will ask for a downward departure based on substantial assistance. You know, there there are, look, you know, you, you see cases, you know, in, in the world, um, you know, Bernie Madoff and others that, that can help try to create parallels to this. But, um, you know, this is a unique right. case and uh, you have some very, very young defendants here as well. Um, and there's all kinds of different there's all kinds of different weighing uh, uh, that, the, that the court will ultimately do in this case. What, if any, influence does the age of the defendants have uh, on the bearing at something like sentencing? You know, every aspect of a defendant's life will come out at sentencing. Um, it's, a, it's an extremely interesting and like really personal process. Um, you and, and and victims will have opportunities to also weigh in with, with what they call a victim impact statement, either in writing or even in person in court. You know, how has this affected me, um, and what what would be my request uh, for 
for ultimately for a sentence. Um, so absolutely every aspect from age to health issues, if any, um, to you know childhood. Uh, really, really, every aspects of a defendant's life is comes into that sort of sentencing determination, and ultimately that'll be left um, to the court. And I, I think the age of these defendants, being relatively young, can can cut either way, right? Um, and and we'll see ultimately where a judge would land with that. Cut either way, meaning it might be used as a sort of a mitigating factor, or also it might be used as a sort of a factor to say, you know, we, these people need to be punished. That that's right. That's right. Let's talk a little bit more broadly, Ari, on what this implication, what this implies uh, for the broader space, having these very high profile, uh, either uh, plea agreements uh, or trials in, in the space. What might this mean uh, in terms of the general framework that we see ourselves in in the digital asset space? I know that this sort of broader context thinking is something that you do a lot of. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, look, it, it's it's never good to sort of have headlines like this in sort of the the broader cryptocurrency ecosystem um, because FTX was certainly a business engaged in the buying, the selling, the brokering of, of cryptocurrency. Um, that said, I think there's also a narrative that's developed, which I think is right. And, and that is that you have to separate the business here from the technology. And right. really when you think about FTX, you're really thinking more of a sort of opaque traditional financial institution, right? right. Intermediary. Um, you know, the fraud here did not occur on blockchains. It occurred in sort of the places where fraud occurs, where there's a lack of corporate controls, there's no corporate governance, uh, there's no strong board, um, and there are, are opportunities for fraud. Um, and that's really what we saw in this case. Um, and I just really do go back to, um, you know, this case is a case about fraud, not about blockchains, not about digital assets. Um, it's more akin to an Enron or or, or a Lehman. You know, I... I I cut my teeth as a young lawyer, sort of in the era of accounting fraud with Enron and WorldCom. And this feels to me more like that than it does to the types of sort of fraud and financial crime that could potentially occur in the crypto ecosystem, right? Where we see hacks and rug pulls and types of other types of activity. Um, right. so, so I think that's one really important factor. Um, I think the other important factor is if this was five years ago, I think we'd be seeing regulators globally scramble. Um, almost like they did sort of in response to Libra, the sort of failed stablecoin project from from Facebook, you know, seeing something that they felt like they had to react to in almost real time. But I think that like other than a few statements globally from regulators, people are uh, re regulators around the world, policymakers have been working on crypto regulation. You and I have had some great conversations around this, you know, just this, you know, next year we're going to see implement or this year, uh, this, this year, first week of the year, we're going to see implementation of Mika, the markets and crypto assets regulation uh, in the uh, European Union, uh, where we're going to see more consistency. Um, we're going to see legislation come from Capitol Hill, I believe this year, at least on stable coins. Um, we've seen, uh, in Dubai, the first ever uh, regulator for a uh, digital assets only regulator, VARA, the Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority, MAS in Singapore has been incredibly active in the space. Um, in the UK, uh, every day we're seeing sort of more and more movement to being a crypto hub, but being a crypto hub that regulates responsibly, right? Um, so I think that the reality is today we have laws in place on consumer protection, on investor protection, um, we have laws on fraud, civil and criminal, that I think cover much of what FTX is about. Um, what we need now is sort of that regulatory clarity in the broader uh, cryptocurrency space. You know, in this country, in the U.S., what is a commodity? What is a security? Um, right. You know, the basic definitions that we've spent a lot of time on. Um, and I think we're going to move towards that. But until we get real action on Capitol Hill, we're going to continue to see this sort of regulatory enforcement, even criminal, uh, even criminal sort of action um, from the executive branch, which is really where we're seeing more most of the activity today. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 
Yeah, it's so interesting when we talk about this. You know, I often use the phrase legal, regulatory, and compliance and legislative. And those are all separate and distinct buckets. So you have what happens in the court system. You have what happens at federal regulatory agencies uh, run out of the executive branch. And of course, uh, probably the biggest component that's right now uh, an open question and something that we're going to be focusing on, I think, a great deal, as you point out, in 2023, is the legislative component. What uh, lawmakers on the Hill and the House and in the Senate are going to do in terms of new legislation to provide a framework uh, for for the regulatory and legal component, it's really important. And as I mentioned, you know, we have that today in Europe, and I think we're we're going to see some movement towards something akin to it in the U.S. But I'm not sure there's sort of the political will there today to have that sort of Mika-style, broad, comprehensive framework. So I think you're going to see it a lot a lot more piecemeal. We saw. Um, some interesting proposed legislation on stable coins coming out of the House Financial Services Committee, similar legislation out of the Senate. We'll likely see something on stable coins where I think there's a lot of consensus even between industry and government today that that mm. there needs to be some sort of reserve backing in the space. Um, in other words, a, a stable coin issuer should have reserves uh, to support the issuance of that of that asset. Um, so right. I think I think I think we'll see some activity there. Um, but not entirely sure we'll get to sort of that broader framework. I think one thing that I'm excited about watching is we are, I think, seeing a development of some consistency across jurisdictions. I mean, the nature of cryptocurrency, and to me, the real promise of the technology is that cross-border value transfer at the speed of the internet. But what that means is there needs to be some consistency across frameworks, right? You know, if you talk to regulators, I had a, a regulator told, told me recently, um, from MAS in Singapore, hey, we're only as strong as our weakest link in terms of global regulation. And, and the reality is that you can have strong regulation in Singapore and the UK and, and Europe, but if you're going to have weaker you know, regulation in other places, you're going to end up with jurisdictional arbitrage and, and, and all types of other issues. So I think consistency of frameworks, but I do think we're starting to see that at least in sort of the key jurisdictions. Yeah, you know, a couple of points here. We are talking about the legislative process. Is it fair to say, Ari, at least this has been my observation, uh, that since the FTX collapse, we've seen a more traditional partisanship develop uh, around the digital asset space. Crypto is always this sort of unusual space and that it didn't seem uh, to break down along traditional partisan lines in the Congress, it seems to be more moving in that direction with the Republican Party being much more broadly supportive of the space in general and the Democratic Party being much more, well, I guess the polite way to say it is skeptical. Is that a fair characterization at this point? Yeah, look, as, as a career civil servant across at least three different presidential administrations, all various parties and, and other folks, I, I can say that sort of like at the regulatory level, certainly um, at the executive branch agencies, the policies being driven by career um, career subject matter experts. When you look at the U.S. Treasury Department, in particular, where I worked for a number of years, you look at the Department of Justice. Right. These are all career civil servants who are sort of driving the policy enforcement decisions. I do think on, in Congress, everything's political, right? That's the sort of the nature of the beast. And I think you are seeing some of that. I, I will say this. Well, but what's interesting is not yeah. just political, but partisan. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about crypto prior to the FTX collapse was it seemed to divide more, frankly, along age lines than along party lines. You had you had conservative, uh, for example, conservative, uh, you know, Democrats who were older who seemed to be opposed to the idea of crypto and, and vice versa. Uh, and that seems to have broken down very clearly and distinctly, uh, at least in terms of the speeches that we saw coming out of the Congress. I'm thinking particularly here of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, chaired by, uh, by Congressman Max. Waters, uh, very critical, skeptical comments from the Democrats on that committee, skeptical comments from the Republicans about Sam Bankman-Fried and the business at FTX, but much more sort of incisive cutting criticism of the crypto space from Democrats uh, coming out of that committee hearing, at least. Yeah, no, no question. And I think that I think one thing that is I, I keep going back to, and maybe this is just me being an optimist and sort of wishful thinking is, to me, this is the ultimate, not, not only bipartisan issue, it's a nonpartisan issue. And right. I absolutely agree. You know, I, interestingly, this was pre-FTX, but I testified before that committee and uh, Chairwoman Waters asked fantastic questions, as did her Republican colleagues that were all really trying to get to the heart of the matter, which was around national security and um, and how we can sort of really leverage the power of blockchains uh, in the national security space, particularly in the United States. And so, I, I, you know, I, I sort of step back from this and FTX does create a moment and like any moment there's going to be this sort of partisan fighting just where we are in our political history in the United right. States. 
But I'm so hopeful that if we if there's ever an issue, right, it's building a new, more transparent financial system. Right. That I, I really am hopeful that will will continue to be n- nonpartisan. And I, I will tell you, sort of, when yeah. I talk to folks and when I that those, I, you know, I, I want to talk about it to, to to anyone who will listen. Yeah, and and in fairness, we've had some young progressive politicians come on uh, Real Vision who are incredibly passionate about digital assets and crypto technology, and it is an encouraging thing to see that it is a nonpartisan issue, as it certainly uh, should be. But getting back to your point earlier, which is how we got here, uh, talking a little bit about uh, this idea of the the crimes that we've seen charged, uh, and now I guess it's fair to say uh, pled to uh, in the FTX saga. And one of the things that's interesting about that to me uh, is that you know we I one of the I think the best comment. I've had on this so far is I had one of the guys on from uh, from Framework uh, from Frameworks Labs who said, "Look, the, the crimes that we're talking about here, the situation that we've seen described, are the types of stories that could have come out of a of a retail laundromat chain. There's nothing specific uh, to crypto, as you pointed out in your remarks earlier. Uh, in these charges, these are all traditional financial fraud charges, wire fraud, bank fraud. Uh, talk a little bit about the challenges that we face and also the opportunities in this space. I think it's reasonable to say, in a certain sense, we got the worst of both worlds here. We got centralization uh, and simultaneously we got offshore deregulated uh, sort of uh, actors uh, behaving in ways that based on the plea agreements that we've seen uh, clearly amounted to criminal conduct. Talk a little bit about what this system might look like in your view as we move forward to a more decentralized system, which is I think what people in this space are most passionate about. Yeah, thank you for the question, because I I think this is like I'm looking forward to the transition from sort of FTX to, to that. Right. And I think you're, the guys from Framework are absolutely right. And, and so are you in the sort of the framing of the question. Um, Pre-FTX, um, what what would I have said about the space? I would say I think over the last, let's say, two to five years, we've been talking about how to regulate centralized exchanges. How do we regulate centralized crypto? And that's why we were talking about things like what they call the travel rule. In other words, what information has to be sent from one exchange to another when funds are moving. Uh, we talked about the, the issue of how to deal with unhosted or self-hosted wallets when you're engaged in exchanges ga- engaging with one of those. What I think we've seen over the last few months and what we were going to see a lot more is that discussion of what regulation could look like in a more decentralized space, you know, where Ash and Ari are truly transacting peer-to-peer entirely on blockchains using DeFi, you know, in really meaningful ways, uh, staking, lending, really using on-chain financial services. And one thing that I think is cool is that we're starting to see regulators talk about this. Um, There's not been a lot, um, but for example, you talk about the White House framework for digital assets, which I think was one of the biggest stories of 2022 in my mind. Really, the only thing that the U.S. has today uh, that, that is akin to a framework comes from the executive branch. The one thing that it did at the end was task Treasury with coming up with risk assessments in two areas, DeFi and NFTs. And to me, that's sort of like, that's where the story is headed. That's where the work needs to be done. How do we sort of, you know, get our hands around what regulation could look like in a truly decentralized space? Abu Dhabi has uh, written a terrific white paper on potentially what regulation could look like um, as things become more decentralized. Because I think the reality is that there's going to have to be some regulation, um, but at the same time, it's going to become more and more complicated as people are engaging almost entirely on blockchains, as opposed to what we have today, where you're going to have the FTXs and the Coinbases and the Binances of the world as on and off ramps, right, to the sort of fiat fiat world. Right. And there's so many open questions that just have yet to be decided here. Uh, we're talking about things like AML, KYC, anti-money laundering, know your customer, uh, talking about things like OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls, uh, who, which regulates as the primary sanctions regulator here in the United States, talking about things uh, more on the civil side, uh, things like what is and is not a security. There's a tremendous amount uh, to be hammered out here. Uh, how optimistic are you about like the timeframes uh, for how long that might take? Yeah, no, it, you're getting to the heart of really the most interesting issues in the space. And I think that question as to what is a security, what is a commodity, I think we'll sort of see how that plays out on Capitol Hill. And I think ultimately that maybe that question is going to be easier to answer because someone's just going to have to answer it through legislation. Um, I think what's going to become more complicated around the technology is that first part, you know, how do we do anti-money laundering and compliance in a truly decentralized world? What it, What is sanctions uh, you know, coming from OFAC, coming from the U.S. Treasury Department, mean um, in a more decentralized world. I think we got a little bit of a taste of that uh, when the U.S. Treasury Department 
designated or sanctioned a decentralized mixing service tornado cash uh, right. another one of the biggest stories in 2022 but i think what we saw with that designation or those sanctions is the willingness of regulators to go after the sort of truly decentralized space the questions that remain though are what are the impact ultimately of those types of sanctions and how can DeFi protocols do compliance you know at trm we work with you know many of the leading DeFi protocols but what you're doing is compliance on their front ends right through their websites because um you know when you're talking about smart contracts um you know you could always sort of go around those websites direct to the protocol layer and i think it becomes much more complicated uh how do you do sort of compliance at the protocol layer but these to me are the really interesting questions of our time uh, and, and regulatory questions in our space but i think unfortunately uh, ftx may have sidetracked those those questions for at least you know several weeks or months um, but I, I'm hopeful we'll get back to that because to me, that's really where the work can be done. And if you actually look around, the people who are heads down sort of building, I think are trying to build solutions for that. Yeah. Let me ask you one other question just to shift gears here, Ari, uh, back to FTX for one second. Is there a distinction in your mind uh, between what's happening on FTX.com, that's the international side, versus FTX US? Uh, one of the sort of striking things for me in the Sam Bankman-Fried interview was the, the degree of forcefulness with which he said, in his belief, FTX US uh, should remain solvent, should be solvent right now. Uh, any sense of where that uh, sort of breakdown currently stands? I really don't know, other than sort of the the interest. I, I had the same reaction as well, um, to be honest with you. Um, you know, were user funds on FTX US not being commingled in the same way they were on the sort of broader FTX.com? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I definitely, I thought it was interesting that uh, he would sort of admit or agree to certain um, activity on the sort of global um, and not on the US. Obviously, one thing that we do keep coming back to is, look, FTX was not a US company. It was a Bahamian entity um, and was not, um, th therefore, was not sort of under the control or regulation of the United States. FTX US, very different. Right. And, um, and I think that'll be sort of a very interesting thing that'll play out over the coming, coming weeks and months. Look, I think one thing that's really important in this FTX case is that, like, we don't even know the loss here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've seen so many different numbers yeah. float around. Um, you know, an 8 billion number has been used in a few pleadings and things. But, you know, there. I think that's part of where he could ultimately be helpful here if there is cooperation. And that is sort of really getting us closer to like a real number of, of, of calculated loss and maybe how to get some of those funds back. Um, but but short answer to your question is, I, I don't know other than to say they are they are distinct entities with distinct obligations to regulators. Yeah, area important points. I see we now have Ram uh, Alawi Alawi you know, of course, I'm live on the air, so I'm going to goof this up. <laughs> Alu Walia on the call. Uh, Ram is the CEO of Lumina Wealth Management. Uh, welcome back to Real Vision, Ram. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me, Ash. I'm pleased to see you again already. Hey, great to see you. So, Ram, we've been holding off this conversation until you could join the call. Tell us a little bit about what's going on right now with Gemini slash Genesis slash DCG. Well, it is Shakespearean drama at the highest level uh, with all the intra-company dealings. And now you've got this feud that's broken out on Twitter where Cameron Winklevoss, one of the co-founders of Gemini, has taken to publicly criticizing Barry Silbert. And there can be no doubt that that letter was heavily scrutinized by their lawyers, very deliberate. Now, this comes in the wake of over 40 days of Genesis having suspended withdrawals. Ron, so, let's, let's zoom yeah. the camera out for folks who sure, aren't following it. this story as closely as you are. Let's talk a yeah, little bit yeah. about what's happening here. Let's set the table for folks. Yeah, so sure. DCG is the parent company controlled by Barry Silver uh, of Genesis uh, and also of Grayscale Investments and, and Coindesk and some other companies. Uh, uh, Gem, Gemini, uh, of course, is run yeah. by the Winklevoss brothers. They had a product called Gemini Earn. Uh, that was essentially a lending product. And it seems that, the, I don't know if the, the right term is, but uh, the back end for that product was uh, was the DCG company, uh, in this case, Genesis, uh, that was effectively serving as the lender behind the scenes. They are now uh, currently no longer servicing that portfolio. Uh, talk a little bit of background here, just for people who are trying to get their head around sure. what actually happened that set this feud in motion. So let's start with the basics. Now, as you pointed out, 
DCG owns Genesis. Genesis is a non-bank conducting banking activity. What does that mean? It means they're taking in short-term liquid deposits and they are making long-term illiquid loans. Whom are they making those loans to? They were making these loans to uh, hedge funds like 3Rs Capital. They were also making loans to their parent company, DCG. Uh, and what are the types of transactions they were financing? They were financing the purchase of crypto and digital assets. They were also financing the purchase of GBTC, which is, of course, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It's the security issued by the sister company of Genesis, which is Grayscale. So uh, the challenge is that the GBTC spread started widening. There was a lot of levered betting on GBTC from 3Rs Capital. 3Rs Capital blew up. Uh, the spread continued to widen. DCG had been buying $780 million worth of GBTC in the 15 months leading up to the demise of 3Rs Capital. So if you zoom out, what you have here is a situation where DCG is a levered bet, is a levered bet on GBTC, both financially through leverage from their subsidiary Genesis and operational leverage through Grayscale. So let me give a little bit of context around the, the three hours capital portion of the story. Uh, so Wall Street Journal reporting uh, that the exposure, the Genesis lent $2.4 billion uh, to three arrows capital. Uh, obviously, this is a large quantity of money. Uh, and I believe the Financial Times reported uh, that, I don't have the article in front of me, but just from memory, uh, that uh, DCG Digital Currency Group, the parent company of Genesis, is the largest single creditor uh, to Three Arrows Capital, and, and therefore I think we can infer suffered uh, the largest loss. This is a, a considerable uh, piece of, of money here. Give us a little bit of context on, on, on just how the magnitude of that can be a challenge. Right. So the public reporting is that the loan from Genesis to 3Rs Capital was $2.6 billion. 3Rs Capital goes insolvent. Then that creates a loss for Genesis. Uh, and that's a significant loss because the typical non-bank lender will have a capitalization rate of 5% as compared to, say, a bank, which will hold around 10% of what's called Tier 1 capital. So when you have a loss of that magnitude, Genesis instantly would have been insolvent. Their liabilities would have exceeded their assets. And that would have triggered uh, issues around their representation to solvency in their loan agreements. And those loans, again, were uh, funded by clients in Gemini Earn and other retail programs. So let's also talk about another aspect of it, which is the, the cross-party lending within Digital Currency Group. This is an important piece of the story, also reported on, I believe, originally by the Financial Times. Talk a little bit about the relationships, the borrowing and lending between uh, the holding company and the portfolio company and why that's relevant here uh, in companies that are seeking to recover capital. So the largest borrower of Genesis is Genesis' parent company, BCG. Uh, so in the DCG letter to investors released, I want to say 45 days ago, DCG, thank you for putting it up on the screen, says that they have $2 billion in loans uh, outstanding. Uh, $1.675 billion of those loans are to their subsidiary Genesis. So it raises a lot of questions around uh, arm's length transactions. Were the, was the loan issued at market terms? That matters if you're a creditor to Genesis. Uh, it also raises questions around whether, in fact, Genesis, even today, is still solvent because by DCG borrowing the $1.1 billion in loan uh, in, from Genesis, they also assume the three hours capital liability. Now, we don't know the precise nature of those transactions. What is the sale of a loan receivable? Was there a credit default swap? Was it seller financing? Uh, but regardless, there needs to be an impairment recorded on the seller's balance sheet, which is Genesis. It's not clear how any interpretation of any possible scenarios of transactions avoids that impairment. And that raises other questions around whether Genesis is solvent today or whether there was clean third-party arm's length uh, pricing between these, uh, between DCG and Genesis.
Ram, could you first define arm's length transaction and why it's such a significant attribute of this and why it matters so much in understanding uh, the potential outcome here? And second, talk a little bit about why it's significant for the creditors of either the portfolio companies uh, or the parent company, the holding company, to determine whether or not these transactions were in fact arm's length and what bearing that has on the recovery Sure, let me, let me define that. So an arm's length transaction is a market-based transaction. Why does it matter? It matters because you have two affiliates and they share controlled interests at the DCG level. In a market-based transaction, the quote I should get on a loan or the term of the loan should be based on market pricing. It shouldn't be based on the fact that we have a shared shareholder. There's a broader set of players and actors around this ecosystem. Those players and actors include Gemini Earn clients, they include owners of GBTC, they include Eldridge, which also is lending money to Genesis. So if those parties look at those transactions, they can potentially contest those transactions if they were not negotiated uh, on an arm's length basis. It's for that reason that at least in the last four weeks, Genesis and DCG have retained separate, separate investment banks and separate counsel to uh, at least adhere to the, uh, or attempt to adhere to the standard of arm's length negotiation. It's very difficult though, because Barry Silver is the largest shareholder of both these institutions, and he would be required to consent to uh, any proposed restructuring. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey, speaking of market-based measures, I want to bring something up on the screen if we could. Uh, this is the chart uh, of the discount or premium of Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, publicly traded. Uh, this is an important point, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, effectively, you call I believe you called this a, a levered bet. Uh, talk a little bit about what we're seeing here. Obviously, that's a steep deterioration in terms of an increasing discount to net asset value of the GBTC product. What does that chart that we're looking at right now mean? Right, so this chart is the discount to the net asset value of GBTC. Again, GBTC is the security issued by Grayscale. The, the collateral backing GBTC is Bitcoin. There's around $10 billion of Bitcoin in the Grayscale Trust. And GBTC was the first security uh, that made it easy to access Bitcoin through the GBTC wrapper. In fact, it was so convenient and there was such a demand to buy Bitcoin that there was a premium uh, of GBTC relative to the underlying net asset value of Bitcoin. That premium was 30 to 50% for about four years running up until the Coinbase IPO. Now what's happened is that premium went flat and then now to a discount of 45%. What that means is if you were to liquidate the holdings of Grayscale and deliver Bitcoin to the owners of GBTC, then the owners of GBTC would enjoy an almost 100% gain because the net asset value of the trust is nearly twice as much as the value of GBTC. You know, to get to this, the 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 relatively recent news flow here on this story, I just want to read uh, from this letter from Cameron Winklevoss directly addressing Barry Silbert, quote, the idea in your head that you can quietly hide in your ivory tower and that this will all just magically go away or that this is someone else's problem is pure fantasy. To be clear, this message is this mess is entirely of your own making. Digital Currency Group, of which you are the founder and CEO, owes Genesis and its wholly owned subsidiaries, 
<clears throat> approximately $1.675 billion, $1,675,000,000. This is money that Genesis owes to earn users and other creditors. You took the money, the money of school teachers, to fuel greedy share buybacks, illiquid venture investments, and kamikaze grayscale net asset value trades that ballooned the fee-generating AUM, assets under management, of your trust, all at the expense of creditors and all for your own personal gain. It is now time for you to take responsibility for this and do the right thing. I mean, two striking things there. First, uh, that they list that number, $1.675 billion, uh, nearly $2 billion, one and two-thirds billion dollars, a huge amount of money. And number two, just the frankly acrimonious tone uh, of that uh, letter, really quite striking. Yeah, let me focus on the last sentence there, where he says, and kamikaze grayscale NIV trades that ballooned the fee generating AUM of your trust at the expense of creditors. What Cameron is doing there is he's linking Barry Silver personally to the same activities that caused the demise of Celsius and BlockFi. And what was that? That was taking in retail deposit money to go finance hedge funds and do trades such as buying GBTC on leverage. So this is DEFCON at the you know, maximum level. He has stepped short of calling Barry out as a violation of contract law, but he's come up to the line and he is hinting at self-dealing self -dealing and improper behavior. And at a minimum, again, linking DCG to the behavior of defunct institutions uh, who are under significant public scrutiny and lawsuits. Yeah, it's important to point out here as we uh, as we go through this that this is these are the the um, th these are the assertions that are being made by Cameron Winklevoss, obviously, who is a party to this dispute. Uh, and we you know we want to be fair, uh, of course, to DCG and and Barry Silbert on the other side of this. Uh, by the way, uh, the Winklevoss twins and Barry Silbert have an open invitation to come on this show at any time uh, to give their side of the story. I think we're looking uh, for that quote right now from uh, from Barry Silbert on this in in just a second. Uh, Ram, while we're doing that, Give us, a, obviously we've covered a lot of ground here. Give us a little bit uh, more broad context on what this means, how you're thinking about it and what you're gonna be looking at going forward. So you put up on the screen here, this quote from Barry, which is in response to the letter. And of course, you know, this was reviewed by lawyers as well. And the first sentence is DCG did not borrow 1.675 billion from Genesis. Again, the second sentence describes uh, interest payment due to Grayscale uh, to Genesis, which is due in May 2023. That's the 575 million. So he's acknowledging that portion of the debt. Here's here's the issue. If you look at the DCG letter to investors, uh, the paragraph leads. You may also recall there is a 1.1 billion promissory note due June in 2033. That's a 10-year loan, and the implication is that it's payable to Genesis, but it's not stated. Uh, so there's a $1.1 billion loan out there. You have this tweet from Barry. Barry just needs to clarify who is that counterparty on this loan. The inference from the letter is that it's Genesis. He's saying it's not. Well, then who is that? The second is, is it a non-cash transaction? It seems from his tweet that it's a non-cash transaction. That's my hypothesis. I have a tweet thread saying that I think this is seller financing. Third, uh, was there an impairment recording the book of Genesis in connection with these transactions. So this $1.1 billion loan, uh, I believe, is the uh, factor that's limiting venture and private equity investment into DCG. It raises a lot of questions and, and it's not clear. We need clarity and Barry can provide that clarity, but he's choosing not to. So, right. well, why would you not provide the clarity? Well, yeah, and obviously, just in, in fairness to Barry Silbert, he's not here to answer these questions, but I want to read uh, the full tweet that uh, Barry Silbert uh, tweeted out yesterday. Quote, DCG did not borrow $1.675 billion from Genesis. DCG has never missed an interest payment to Genesis and is current on all loans outstanding. Next loan maturity is May 2023. DCG delivered to Genesis and your advisors a proposal on December 29th and has not received any response. So that coming from Barry Silbert uh, replying on Twitter yesterday uh, to Cameron Winklevoss, obviously just trying to be balanced here and to give both sides uh, their say. 
obviously a lot going on here. Um, and Rom, great for you to bring this kind of clarity. This is obviously a very complicated situation here with lots of different counterparties involved, uh, lots of legal, financial, regulatory accounting issues uh, that we're trying to understand here. But an excellent, excellent overview uh, of where we are right now. Uh, and I think we believe we still have Ari on the line. I wanted to ask both of you guys some questions from our viewers if you guys have time to stick around and do that. Absolutely. Go for it. Excellent. Um, but by the way, before we do this, uh, it's time to remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That way you never miss out on this crypto analysis here on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. And there's an ambulance going by outside of the uh, studio here, as you can probably hear. I apologize for that. Uh, the first question comes to us from Ralph H. asking on the Real Vision website, does Ari foresee any jurisdictional issues for U.S. prosecutors over FTX? This is a really interesting question, Ari, obviously referring to the fact uh, that uh, there is a Bahamian uh, component to this case. Any potential jurisdiction issues that you see here? I really don't. It is a good question sort of at the outset, given sort of FTX is not a U.S. entity per se. And I think that's probably where the question stems from. But when you talk about U.S. users um, and sort of the fraud involved that directly impacted um, U.S. persons or U.S. users, it sort of is the jurisdictional hook you need. There's probably several others, uh, you know, as as well. So I, I, I think that the U.S. prosecutors have probably put some thought into sort of what charges specifically to bring. The U.S. campaign finance charges, for example, um, are there's a direct U.S. nexus. Obviously, uh, there's a violation of U.S. campaign finance laws in particular. The funds were given to U.S. politicians for purposes of, you know, camp campaigns. Those, those funds were um, allegedly commingled uh, with user funds. So a uh, lot of jurisdictional hooks here for the U.S. Uh, to go with. And uh, don't 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 see a huge problem there. Yeah. Here's a question for uh, for for Rom. Uh, this comes to us from Sean B. from the Real Vision website. Uh, Sean B. has obviously been following this story very closely. I'm going to read you the whole question here because it gives you, I think, a lot of opportunity to comment and provide some clarity, Rom. Uh, can Rom walk us through the downside of GBTSKI, that, of course, is Grayscale Bitcoin Trust? I understand that the fees are on the net asset value and not on the market cap. The discount could grow greater uh, and that you do not have the keys, talking about the keys for the underlying Bitcoin. Uh, but it seems like there are two lawsuits now trying to force a convergence of the price and net asset value. Uh, one being the Grayscale lawsuit with the SEC and two, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the new fur tree lawsuit. The risk reward seems to be in favor of owning GBTC versus the individual coins. He's referring here to the discount to net asset value, which you referred to, Ram, as a levered play uh, on Bitcoin. Um, Thoughts on Sean's questions and comments. Sure. So let me clarify first. The fur tree complaint does not seek remedy by uh, a reg M redemption. The fur tree complaint uh, lays out an allegation that uh, DCG and Grayscale do not in earnest seek to convert to an ETF. Uh, and what's, a, claim, what's a reg M exemption for folks? Right. The reg M redemption would enable the trust to uh, offer Bitcoin and redeem the Bitcoin out of the trust. So that would be a direct mechanism to close the gap. Okay. So an ETF conversion would be another direct mechanism to close the gap. The difference between Reg and ETF is an ETF, you're creating and redeeming shares in real time throughout the trading day, whereas Reg M is you trade an appointment or you trade on a scheduled basis. Uh, and the claim in the fur tree uh, suit is that there's no sincere intention from Grayscale to do that. And they provide various data points and they cite the law around that. Um, so I, in terms of the mechanisms to close the discount, you need the Reg M redemption. The ETF conversion is not going to happen. Gary Gensler denied that in November of last year. The risk to the gap widening is that if Chapter 11 happens with Genesis, which is looking incredibly likely, you look at this letter from Cameron, this is what you do before you do an involuntary petition for Chapter 11. In the case of Chapter 11, the most liquid assets Genesis has on its balance sheet are GBTC and other crypto assets. And we already see that DCG tokens held have been trading down far worse than the rest of the assets on the, on the market. So that's the risk of GBTC. However, you have to go through a court process. It'll take time before you know, the bankruptcy trustee says, okay, it's time to liquidate these holdings. So that's the bear case for GBTC. You know, the bull case is the following. The bull case is that DCG will be forced to sell Grayscale, its prized crown jewel, to generate cash flow to pay off its creditors. 
And when they sell Grayscale, it'll be sold to a sponsor, maybe, maybe Valkyrie. Valkyrie has said they'd be willing to be the program administrator for Grayscale. And Valkyrie would uh, take advantage of the Reg M and allow the price of GBTC to come closer to the NAV. So that's the bull case for GBTC. Ram, it's great to have you lay out, frankly, both sides of the bull case and the bear case there, because I think uh, lots of folks who are watching this uh, from the sidelines have struggled to understand not just what's happening, uh, but also the case in favor and against. Uh, one more question for each of you here. We've got some great questions today. Uh, this one comes to us uh, from, uh, oh, oh, I lost the question. Uh, I lost the question for Ari. There's this great question uh, here. Um, here it is. Here it is. Uh, what do you think? Uh, this comes to us from uh, Shawshank Rye on YouTube. Uh, and this is for Ari. Uh, it's a great question. And I think a lot of people have wondered this. Uh, what do you think about SBF's interview leading up to his arrest? Does that help him or make his case worse? I think a lot of uh, my lawyer friends were uh, were pinging me saying, what is this guy doing? Yeah, no, I, I spent a few years before going to the U.S. Attorney's Office as a as a white-collar defense lawyer uh, in that sort of age of Enron and WorldCom, and I can tell you that is a, a defense lawyer's worst nightmare um, to have a uh, client or defendant going out, going out and making all kinds of statements that ultimately he'll be cross-examined on or, or will will come in to, to play at trial. So, uh, no, I, I, think, I, I think talking sort of at that stage in the game really only hurts you, um, but... Uh, but look, you know, I, I think he decided sort of on a on a PR tour versus sort of saving that for for a potential trial or criminal prosecution, and that was clearly a calculated decision that at least he made. Um, but no, if I was a lawyer advising, uh, I would hate every minute of that. And as yeah. as a prosecutor, uh, you know, it's gold for cross examination. By the way, for people who have, who are watching these interviews, the one that got the least attention, so I think the three main interviews were the Good Morning America interview, the New York Times conference interview, but the third one, and the one that I thought uh, was frankly most harmful to his case was the Wall Street Journal interview. Uh, so if you haven't seen that, go and take a look. Uh, it really is uh, quite a, um, well, it's quite a spectacle. It's, let's say that. Uh, here's a final question for Ron. This one comes to us from Gandalf Gray on YouTube. Uh, and this is an interesting question because I think it, it questions uh, uh, Gemini's framework on this or their perspective. And the question from Gandalf is, quote, isn't it a little disingenuous for Gemini to call them out in such a way? What happened to the Gemini vetting process? They, can, uh, they chose to use them for their lending program. A, a fair question. It's a, it's a nuanced answer here. Look, so Gemini was relying also on reps and warranties in the loan agreement. A rep and warranty is when you uh, are making a claim that you're asserting is true. And one of those reps and warranties was to the solvency of Genesis. So if I'm gonna lend money to Genesis, I want Genesis to rep, to represent that they're solvent and that I could, that I could underwrite them as a creditor. So that's in Gemini's defense. On the other hand, there are open questions. For example, was Gemini acting as an offerer of a security made to the public? Normally, when you have a security made to the public uh, to retail clients, there's a name for that security registration. It's called an S1 filing. It's what happens when you go through an IPO process. You know, was there sufficient disclosure? You know, there was no private place memorandum. And look, I'm not a securities lawyer. I'm just saying those are the right questions to ask. Uh, I'm sure Gemini expresses regret around what happens. I, I do take them at face value that they're trying to drive towards a solution. They've convened a creditor committee. They're holding DCG to public account. Um, I do think they're trying to take act in good faith and take the best steps forward. So much material that we've covered here with both of you guys, a terrific conversation. I want you to get some key takeaways, final points uh, from each of you, but first I'll give you mine. Uh, you know, uh, this is a very difficult show to sort of characterize and wrap up in a couple of sentences here. Uh, we spoke a lot uh, with Ari about what was happening in the Sam Bankman Freed slash FTX criminal prosecution. Obviously, uh, this is a story that's very much unfolding right now. Uh, it's very difficult, uh, in fact, indeed impossible to predict the outcome of criminal trials, but clearly some significant issues there uh, around uh, what's going to happen 
uh, going forward in that case. And we're going to have to just wait and see. I don't really know what we can say to sum that up, uh, other than obviously it's it's currently an, an ongoing legal matter, and we have to just wait and see what happens. But I would also add uh, that beyond uh, FTX, I think Ari made some incredibly important points about the nature of the space, about what's happening there, uh, and about some of the challenges and opportunities that we're going to see uh, in the year to come, and frankly, in the years to come uh, around the questions about AML, KYC, uh, regulating OFAC, regulating the securities aspect of this space, just clearly a lot of open questions. And I think uh, it's fair to say that we're just at the beginning of those right now. Uh, you know, uh, on the DCG Genesis Gemini front, obviously, this is a very acrimonious case. Uh, there's a, a great deal uh, of, uh, of uh, sort of recrimination uh, and counterclaims happening right now in the space. Again, this is a, uh, this is a case that is still very much open and ongoing, uh, and we just don't know how it's going to end. I think that's the most fair and intellectually honest way to frame it at this point. Uh, but I really want to give you guys as the experts a chance to have uh, your say on this. Ari, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, no, I think you nailed it and you sort of nailed it towards the end of our conversation. And that is like, we are going to move eventually to sort of that post FTX world where uh, regulators are going to start thinking, um, I think, in more sophisticated ways around how what regulation would look like in a truly decentralized space. Right. We've been focused so much on these crypto businesses that feel more like traditional financial institutions where you can have this potential for fraud that does not occur on blockchains, right? That occurs in sort of those opaque corridors of traditional finance. Um, and, and I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in 2023, regulators really starting to talk about what sound smart regulation looks like for DeFi. And that's quite frankly what I'm most excited about. Yeah. Briefly on securities and policy, I think regulators are increasingly coming to the view that they want to apply federal securities law to crypto. That would include the segregation of duties, that include the accreditation testing, that would include uh, requiring compliance of securities exchanges from existing crypto institutions. That's a quick outlook on that. But my best advice to Barry Silver is to accept the creditor committee terms. He needs to do that. Uh, unfortunately, what it'll mean for DCG is that they'll be paying out the free cash flow to the creditors of DCG for many years to come. It's a form of effectively corporate indentured servitude, it's just the nature of the assets and liabilities. But the alternative to that, the alternative to that of Chapter 11 will be uh, hundreds plus millions of dollars lost in legal fees. Uh, that doesn't help DCG, that doesn't help Gemini Earn uh, either. And my advice to the creditor committee would be to invite a VC or PE firm that can be a source of strength and inject new equity capital. They're going to get a great deal on the valuation of, of DCG, and that is the best move to strengthen the ecosystem, preserve jobs, and avoid the left tail risk from DCG unwinding, you know, grayscale or other uh, scenarios. And it's important to note under that scenario of new equity infusion, presumably uh, the existing equity holders get diluted in that process. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ari, Rom, this was just a spectacular show. Uh, so much content, so much value. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. That's it for today. If you're not yet a subscriber, don't forget to subscribe. Real Vision Crypto is free. For those of you watching on YouTube, remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell so you can stay up to date on all the latest crypto analysis. Join us again tomorrow. We'll talk all things DeFi with Mona El Issa. i see you tomorrow at noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Enjoy your afternoon, everybody. Ooh.